When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. The jury forewoman on that Georgia special grand jury has a lot to say about former President Trump and the investigation tonight. We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you. But should she be saying all of that out loud? Our experts will tell us. Plus, President Biden making a major speech saying that Russia will never win the war in Ukraine, while President Putin says it's impossible to defeat Russia on the battlefield. So tonight, we'll look at the difference between what we see here in the U.S. and what the Russian people see on their TV screens. And we have new reporting from CNN's K-File tonight on what Nikki Haley said about the Civil War when she was running for governor of South Carolina in an interview that included a board member of a white nationalist organization. I think you had one side of the Civil War that was fighting for tradition, and I think you had another side of the Civil War that was fighting for change. Do you believe the states of the United States have the right to secede from the I think that they do. I mean, the Constitution says that. We have more on that new reporting coming up. And watch what happens when Bernie Sanders accidentally photobombs a TikTok video. Okay, but first, let's get right to that grand jury forewoman who is speaking out tonight. Here with me in studio is former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman, The Daily Show's Jordan Klepper, CNN political analyst Ested Herndon, and political commentator Margaret Hoover. Great to have all of you guys here tonight. Great to have you. Thanks for having us. Um, okay, so, Nick. Yes. Let me play for you one more. Th- well, I have a few different things that the jury forewoman said. So she said a lot today. She did have a lot to say. Yes. So I want to get your take on that. But first, let me play for you um, a little bit more. We know that you all heard at least of at least one call that Donald Trump was on during this period. This yes. is the infamous call that the, the whole world has, has heard as it was released when yes. he was speaking to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. But... In terms of just calls and recordings of calls, are there others of those? I can tell you I heard other phone calls. I don't think I could name all of them right now if I wanted to. (laughs) After 75 witnesses in eight months, it gets hard to keep all your bits straight. Other calls that Donald Trump was on? Yes. I'm positive I have heard the president on the phone more than once. Nick, is she supposed to be speaking out like that? Well, it's not what you usually see with a grand jury investigation. I mean, the traditional grand jury sits, it hears the evidence, it decides whether there's sufficient cause to indict, um, and it's all secret. Uh, And this is a little bit different. I mean, Georgia has a different situation here with a special grand jury. 
Um, she claims that she's staying within the parameters of what the judge told her she could say. Because she's not allowed to talk about deliberations. Right. She, well, she's talking about deliberations, mm-hmm. but she's not talking about what their recommendations were and who they've recommended should be indicted. Although, I must say, she's basically said it's going to be Donald Trump, that he's going down on an indictment here. Yeah. I mean, she, she was asked by the... Um, Atlanta Journal-Constitution today about whether or not um, Donald Trump, when he said that the grand jury exonerated him, whether that was true, she rolled her eyes and started laughing, which was, to me was a clear sign, yeah, he's going to be indicted. Donald Trump is going to be another one of these presidents who has the first one to be Impeach twice, and he's going to be the first one to face an indictment. Is eye-rolling and laughter, Jordan, the universal sign for that answer? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think. I, I like how she played it coy all the way through. And the fact that she said uh, there's no plot twists is so exciting to me. I got an HBO Max account. I got Netflix. I have plenty of plot twists. The fact that democracy might be boring is, is frankly, the biggest tease you could have. Um, I said... Is this going to possibly hurt the prosecution that she is out talking to so many different media outlets? I mean, I don't know the answer to whether it hurts the prosecution. Certainly hurts the suspense around the prosecution. This is someone who is going way further beyond what I think anybody expected uh, uh, the four person to say in this case. But uh, what another thing about this case has been typical, right? Not the person speaking out at this point. Not the fact that it's the former president involved. Not the fact that he had been in tweet, uh, impeached two times before that. And so this is building up to a very atypical result which we know is the former president, who is the leading contender for the next nomination, being indicted again. Margaret, your thoughts? Look, <laughs> the notion that there might be some real judicial accountability from sort of the third branch of government, a place where we haven't seen checks and balances on the political front, we haven't seen it sort of from the Senate and the two times that the president was impeached, he was not convicted, um, frankly, feels like a plot twist. <laughs> and the only thing that gives me pause about her speaking out is, frankly her own safety. I mean, in this age of celebrity, in this age of needing attention, and um, frankly, in an age of increased heightened political polarization and political violence, you know, I worry about anybody sticking their head up, bringing attention to a case that is so volatile and frankly does inspire so many um, wingnuts, for a better word, for lack of a better word. Yes, (laughs) Uh, it's a valid point. And so, Nick, um, to that same question, is she harming the prosecution's case? No, I don't see how she's going to prosecute, harm the case. Um, The indictment will come down and the evidence will be what the evidence is. It's not going to impact what the evidence actually is. But they won't say that the, the special grand jury was somehow illegitimate or that they were in it for celebrity or that, you know, I think that there was, I'll, let me play you a little bit more sound. There was, she talked a lot today. And at one point she said that she was excited about shaking, I think, Rudy Giuliani's hand. None of that stuff Donald Trump can use against her? I don't see how that can be used at all in a trial. He's going to have to face particular charges. He's going to have to face charges over trying to shake down uh, Secretary Raffensperger. He's going to have to face charges uh, perpetrating falsehoods about the Georgia election to Secretary Raffensperger. He's going to have to face charges about trying to importune 
Governor Kemp into actually uh, calling a special session of the Georgia legislature. He's going to have to face charges concerning sending Rudy Giuliani down to get these fake electors going and to get the uh, legislature in Georgia to reconsider um, the Biden electors and vote in Trump electors. I mean, there are a series of criminal acts here. There's evidence to prove those acts. And the star witness in most of this is going to be Donald Trump, whose voice is on tape. So when you put all of that together, this is going to be a blip on the screen in terms of this entire case. All right, let me play for all of you what she says she would like to see happen. I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much, too much information, too much of my time, too much of everyone's time, too much of their time, too much argument in, in court about getting people to appear before us. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good, bye. And if it was just a perjury charge or perjury charges, would that be acceptable to you? That's fine. I will be happy as long as something happens. I mean, it was eight months of her life. I don't blame her. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of time to put into it. It feels like, I mean, the last four years sometimes feels like the last 16 years in many people's lives. Uh, I don't know. I'm not holding my breath for accountability. I do worry about her. I think this may be a blip in terms of the prosecution and the case. But as somebody who goes out and talks to people who still support Donald Trump, I see somebody like this who goes on television, MSNBC, I believe, who seems excited about uh, teasing what could happen to Donald Trump. And I already imagine myself engaging with folks who already see this as illegitimate because this person wants the attention. And I understand it. We all want the information. But but I already can tell uh, the court of public opinion that case is starting to build itself right now. Yeah, I hear you. She, she's been on our, our air. That was a clip from our air and MSNBC. And she spoke to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your thoughts, Mark? One of the things that strikes me about her, I mean, she's, she's so sort of na- naively, sort of wonderfully innocent about how excited she is about talking to the press about this. And it, it just reminds me of this line from William F. Buckley Jr. saying, like, he would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the Boston phone book than, like, the 20, 20 people in the faculty of Harvard. Was, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> right? It's like... This is this wonderful process of completely normal, ordinary people sitting down to adjudicate justice. I mean, that is the brilliance and the genius of democracy. And, and you can see that there sort of in her, in her smile and in her clear eyes. I think she made that point, actually. In one of the interviews, I think she said, it's so great. We're just normal people. We're all just regular people. <laughs> just excitable, regular people. I'm paraphrasing as well. I mean, hey, that's a democracy in a nutshell. I mean, I think this speaks to someone who saw the reality show that was the White House come directly to them, but it is very gravely serious to your point. These are these, this was a very like core democracy act, but also core to the to what American people want to see in terms of accountability. So this is someone who rose to that task even in this moment as they're making a kind of a joke out of it. One last thing, Nick. She said, um, there's a quote from her in the Atlanta Journal Constitution. She said several witnesses, less than a dozen, had been granted immunity from prosecutors. That's pretty amazing. That means that they came, not only did she say they were granted immunity, but that certain people already had made deals with the prosecutors before they came in to testify. So in other words, the DA did her homework. She brought in people. um, She decided to give certain people who were lesser on the, the line of criminality immunity from prosecution. I mean, this is looks like a pretty well thought out case. Um, And it's going to be very interesting to see what the indictment looks like when it comes out. But 
I, I can't even remember a case where I've ever given more than four people immunity of some kind or made a deal with four people to give it to 12 people. Well, she says less than a dozen. I'm not sure right. how specific her math is. Well, even if it's 10, that's a lot. Mm. And but but there are a lot of people involved. I mean, look at all the people that were involved in this phony elector scheme. Uh, and there are a lot of different people who can be witnesses. And the question is, how many of those people actually had direct contact with either Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, um, or Mark Meadows? Those are the big four that are going down on this indictment. Nick, thank you very much. We'll keep you on speed dial. Uh, everybody else, stick around if you would. We're going to show you the difference between what the war in Ukraine looks like here in the U.S. and what the Russian people are hearing on TV. Dueling speeches today from President Biden and Vladimir Putin as the one-year anniversary approaches of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Autocrats only understand one word. No, no, no. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. The Western elites do not conceal their goals. As they say, it's a direct quote, to bring Russia a strategic defeat. What does that mean for us? It means to end us once and for all. CNN presidential historian Timothy Naftali joins the conversation, back with Jordan Klepper, Estet Herndon, and Margaret Hoover. Um, Tim, great to have you. What, uh, give us your historical perspective on what these speeches mean. Well, this is a momentous day. Um, because we are coming to the first anniversary of the start of this war, it's essential for members, the leaders of the coalition, to re-up their commitment and to make it clear that even though this war is lasting a lot longer than anyone would want, in fact, nobody wanted this war except for the Russians, that the, the West is willing to continue to do what is necessary for as long as necessary to help Ukraine. So the timing of the president's speech was natural and important. The fact that he... Uh, went to Ukraine first to be physically present because he, remember, our president is commander-in-chief as well as being head of state and head of government. As commander-in-chief, he needed to be there because, as he has said over and over again, our freedom is on the line. The, the, the border of our freedom, the front of our freedom is right there in the Donbass and right there in the South. So he goes there and then he goes to Warsaw, the country that's a frontline country that next to Estonia is perhaps the most committed to helping Ukraine, it was beautiful. And it wasn't about just America. It was about Poland, too. He thanked the Polish people again and again. And, of course, he talked about the heroism of the Ukrainians. Instead of letting Putin um, frame the discussion the way that the Russians want it framed, which is that it's Washington versus Moscow, he made it clear this is the coalition supporting freedom, supporting Ukraine, versus the autocrat. So I thought the language was right, the moment was right. This was President Biden at his very best. And I think like George Herbert Walker Bush, who knew the exact right tone to use in 1989, Biden used the right tone today. Margaret? I, I couldn't agree more with you about the choreography. Um, to go to Poland is, is, is just, it's like double thumbing your nose at the Russians, right? First Kiev, then Poland. I mean, you, you just, you can't counter-program Putin better. 
And it doesn't matter what Putin said. The president of the United States was both in Kiev and in Poland. It was, it was, it was beautifully orchestrated. Um, this is a day where, and I don't think it's trite, what Harry Truman said is that, you know, politics and partisanship should end at the water's edge. And it's a day that, you know, you have seen how effective President Biden has been at unifying the West, but he's also been pretty effective at unifying um, the what is otherwise a pretty hyper-partisan uh, approach in Washington. Uh, there's a lot of unity around support for Ukraine and support for uh, the Western alliance. With some vocal acceptance. Even, even though you have sort of an ascendant, uh, you know, activist wing of the right, um, it, they have still managed to be there and to support this alliance. Yeah, can I pick up on, the, up on that even? I mean, this comes as a critical time, to your point, because the tide uh, uh, politically, and that maybe that may not be changing, but it certainly is on the, the radar of both the administration that you have more mo- vocal minority leaders in the ho- majority leaders in the House who are saying that they're looking to put, quote unquote, America first. And that means stepping back from the commitment to Ukraine. But you also have an increasing amount of some Democrats who have said that um, not necessarily in Congress, but on a local level. I was just in Munich with the vice president at the Munich Security Conference, and that was also the tone of the European mm-hmm. leaders there to say that it was important to re-up the commitment right now because there was the, the, the issue that maybe the tide was turning domestically in Germany. Maybe the tide could be turning domestically in America. And so, yes, to your point, it was important for the White House to really choreograph that show of support in this moment. But it comes as there is an underbelly mm-hmm. uh, uh, of a fear of a political sea change that could be on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Jordan, it's always interesting to hear how Russian state media is playing all of this. So here's a little uh, mashup of what they said today. Он смотрит на долгую перспективу, и мы можем констатировать, что у страны-то вот здесь все хорошо, никакой паники нет. Вот это самое главное в послании – уверенность, спокойствие в нашем завтрашнем дне и единство. Единство с народом и единство народа. Мы победим. Это главное, что сказал президент. Победим, несмотря на то, что Запад играет кропленными картами, несмотря на то, что ставит задачу нас уничтожить, не выйдет. Взял курс на эскалацию. И я думаю, что нам тоже нужно как-то по пути эскалации тоже как-то... Okay, for people listening on the radio, um, obviously I'm fluent in Russian, so I will now explain exactly what was just said. Basically, they say um, the West is headed towards an escalation. And uh, I think we also should cautiously start to walk a path towards escalation. And they say, the president said we will win despite the West playing with marked cards, despite the West's objective to destroy us. It won't work out for them. It's just interesting to hear what they're being fed. Interesting. Scary. You know, we hear unity. It sounded like you were talking over there as well. Uh, so you, you, it's fascinating to watch this kind of a thing. And I, honestly, I, I don't know if I necessarily have the same amount of optimism about a speech like this uh, bringing our country together. I'd like to think it is when I see these small but vocal examples of people who are using this yet again as an, a, a time to to criticize, uh, a time to attack, a time to to maybe hold our cards when we're when we're talking about this thing of a, a another Cold War coming. It feels like there are a, a minority of folks who still haven't picked a side, and and that pops up on days like today. Uh, uh, it makes me sad. I think I grew up as a, a kid who didn't pay that much attention to history class, but I think these moments were always important. There are there moments that brought this country together, and I really, fingers crossed, hope that these are the kinds of moments that can do that. I don't blame him for being skeptical. Can I, yeah, well, go ahead. Well, uh, I, I, I want to defer to the historian. I'll just say one thing and tee you up. 
I mean, there's some things about Cold War II that are different than Cold War I. And, and some things are the same. Cold War II. And, and I, I, there are many historians who call this Cold War II. They say we're in it. I, Tim, Tim Naftali will weigh in in a minute. But one thing that is similar is that, and, or, or slightly different, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, full disclosure, I'm on the board there. This is an organization that broadcast radio behind the Iron Curtain so that so that the state media that you just heard on, that Putin got isn't the only thing that Russians are hearing. There are millions of Russians in Russia today who are still getting Radio Free Europe, who are still getting through VPNs and the Internet, counter-programming to what Russians said. And so what is, what is the same but also different is that the technology has changed and has allowed us – Cold War II looks different this way. And, and there is still an information war um, and a battle for broadcasting the truth behind the lines. I do not believe we're in a Cold War. Um, this, the Russians want us to believe we're in a Cold War. But uh, Russia is not the Soviet Union. It is not the leader of an international global uh, coalition or movement. It is much weaker uh, economically. It is much weaker militarily. It does not pose an existential threat to the United States or North America. It is a major regional problem in Europe. And we are the arsenal of democracy. But it is not a Cold War. Um, what about China? The, well, that's different. That's a different crisis. That's, but China and Russia have, di- have different interests. Um, but in terms of Russia, it is essential for Putin to get us to talk about a Cold War because his line at home is this is about Russian sovereignty. And we have to keep saying it's about Ukrainian sovereignty. It's not about Russian sovereignty. And as the president said today, you, Mr. Putin, can end this war with a word. You come out of Ukraine and it's over. And Putin doesn't want to accept that because he can't. Once he decided to annex those four provinces, he, didn't, he decided he didn't want um, to back out. He did not want an off-ramp. So we don't and shouldn't give Putin, and we shouldn't make it easier for him to do his propaganda. He's going to do it anyway. But we should keep in mind, this is not the Cold War. This is not, a, this is not Kennedy versus Khrushchev. This is the world, or a lot of the world, against an autocrat, and America is the arsenal of democracy as we were in 1940 and early 41 when we were not part of World War II. So that's where we are, and I think this message is a message that will help keep the coalition together because the minute we make this Kennedy versus Khrushchev, the Germans are going to get antsy. Tim, great to get your perspective. Thank you very much for being here. Everybody stick around. So we have new reporting tonight. CNN's K-File unearths video of Nikki Haley defending the right to secession and coming up with a curious explanation for the Civil War. We have that video next. Uh, New reporting tonight on 2024 presidential candidate Nikki Haley. CNN's K-File discovered some video from a 2010 interview with a South Carolina activist group that says they, quote, fight attacks against Southern culture. I think you had one side of the Civil War that was fighting for tradition, and I think you had another side of the Civil War that was fighting for change. You know, at the end of the day, what I think we need to remember is um, that, you know, everyone is supposed to have their rights, everyone's supposed to be free, everyone's supposed to have the same um, freedoms as anyone else. So, you know, I think it was tradition versus change is the way I see it. She also spoke about a state seceding from the country. Do you believe the states of the United States have the right to secede from the union? I think that they do. I mean, the Constitution says that. If it became 
an issue where the South, state of South Carolina needed to secede from the union, would you support it? You know, I'm one of those people that doesn't think it's going to get to that point. Now, one of the interviews, interviewers identified in reports at the time and in, uh, by CNN was a man named Robert Slimp. That's a board and an active member of the White Nationalist Council of Conservative Citizens. That same white nationalist group was cited as the inspiration for Dylan Roof, the white nationalist who killed nine people at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, after that shooting... Nikki Haley famously supported removing the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House grounds. We've reached out to the Haley campaign to ask about this interview, and her spokesman responded, quote, Nikki Haley's groundbreaking leadership on removing the Confederate flag from the South Carolina Capitol grounds is well known, end quote. Senior reporter for The Root, Jessica Washington, joins the conversation along with Jordan Klepper, Estet Herndon, and Margaret Hoover. Estet, let me start with you. That was a different take on the Civil War than um, what some of us had learned before in terms of um, it was about tradition versus change. She omitted, I feel, an important factor like slavery. Yeah, she omitted what the change was advocating for, what the tradition was advocating for on the Confederate side was to write to enslave. And, and, and that was the tradition that was to be held so dear. But the thing for a Republican primary is that the right to succeed probably won't lose you all that many voters, uh, uh, particularly for a, a part of the Trump select that, that actually affirms that right all the time. The problem for Nikki Haley in this situation is that she's someone who's seen as flip-flopping on the issues, and this would be another one. The mere fact that the the, the campaign kind of points to, to how she took down the Confederate flag uh, uh, at, it, when she was on the Capitol grounds after the white supremacist shooting is another example of this. It's not just that she is in an ultra-conservative or what we would consider more fringe camp or that she's in the camp that's trying to bring together folks. It's that she's tried to have both at the same time. And I think that's evident here. And that's what's going to be the challenge she has to overcome in the primary. So this is from 2010. How problematic is this? Look, I I actually have a very, very different take on this. And um, look, (laughs) secession is not in the Constitution. I mean, there are some things that she just said that are incorrect there. Um, But let's just go back to the Republican Party in South Carolina in a gubernatorial primary that is a five-way primary in in 2010, 2010, okay? Nikki Haley is in a, she is the first person of color who is leading for the gubernatorial slot in South Carolina and the first woman, okay? She is trying to win Republicans. By the way, there are no white, there there are not black Republicans who she's trying to get to vote for her because there aren't black Republicans largely in South Carolina at this time except Tim Scott, who's not even in Congress at the time. And she is just one, she is leading the June 8th primary in a runoff. It is just before she comes away with a majority for the runoff of the GOP primary. So she is talking to a she is talking there. to the base of the Republican Party in a racist state with a racist history, and she isn't saying y'all are racist. She, but she is, and so I, I can appreciate that against the backdrop of a 2023. Way more progressive, I think, mainstream understanding and sensitivity about race. You have to understand what she's doing there. But when you say South Carolina is a racist state, you mean? I just mean what? there is a lot of. Po- Did I say it was a racist state? Mm-hmm. A, a lot. Thank you for allowing. Uh, thank you. Uh, what my what my um, client meant to say <laughs> was. Uh, Look, there are a lot of pockets, and I think most Republicans in South Carolina will recognize there are a lot of pockets and traditions of the Republican Party in South Carolina that still harbor racism, as, by the way, is witnessed by the fact that 
the gentleman who was interviewing her is associated with a white nationalist group. That was a really important part of the Tea Party coalition in 2010 that she had to get in order to win what ultimately became a historic election of the first woman of color to become governor of that state. Okay. So political expediency. How do you see it, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, you know, we can say it's political expediency. I think if you agree with racism, if you espouse racism, then you are being racist. I don't think there's really like a line there of you've got to just agree to get along. But is that what you hear her saying here? Or is she just trying to thread some needle that doesn't ever mention slavery? I think it goes a little bit past that. I think when you're saying that they were trying to preserve a tradition here and that tradition was slavery, that goes a little bit past just trying to thread a needle. That's not really how I see it. And I think that, you know, it's actually not that different from what she's saying now with against CRT, all these things. She wants to erase this part of the history, to whitewash this part of the history. I think it's worth listening to what she said then and what she's saying now. And I think that that's an evolution of where the party has realized they can talk about race. Jordan? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's ridiculous, tradition versus change. That's a ridiculous, <laughs> I, I understand the context, but even 10 years ago, it's, that's a wild way to look at the Civil War. But I, I do look at her right now, and an issue she has, I went to uh, Nikki Haley's kickoff event. She has a real tough time kicking and getting past Donald Trump. And this is, she can't tear down any monument. This, these things in her party... I know they are scary, they are a bad history, but if we're going to move forward, you have to stand up and be an adult in the room and call it as you see it. Call BS where it is. And I think I see this right now, and it's the same response she's giving when they ask her about the insurrection. She just keeps giving the same response. And we're going to play some of what you find on the campaign trail coming Good TV. Up. It's great TV. I look forward <laughs> yeah. to it, as we all do. So what is it like out on the Republican campaign trail right now? Jordan Klepper has been on assignment for The Daily Show, hitting some of those rallies, talking to voters. He's going to bring us the highlights. Uh, the battle lines for the 2024 Republican primary being drawn. So what's it like out there on the campaign trail at a Trump or a Nikki Haley rally? Back with us now, we have Jessica Washington, Jordan Klepper, Estelle Herndon, and Margaret Hoover. So Jordan, you meet interesting people on the campaign trail. I do. So you were just at a Nikki Haley rally, Uh and you met a man who had soured. He used to be a big Trump supporter. He had soured on Donald Trump, and you asked him what was the tipping point. So Mm -hmm. let's play that. When did Trump lose your support? The nail in the coffin for me with Donald Trump? Let me guess. Charlottesville. No. But, okay, let me guess. You're not going to guess it. Kids in cages. Nope. The insurrection, January 6th. The, nope. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, wait, hold on. First impeachment. Nope. Second impeachment. Nope. Okay, uh, inviting white supremacists over to Mar-a-Lago. No, but that, I mean, you know, criticizing DeSantis before his election. Wouldn't have guessed it. So that's the line right that there. That was the nail in the coffin. I would have guessed kids in cages. I told you you wouldn't have guessed it. I know. <laughs> you guys, you're having too much fun there, Jordan. We had a great, that was a great conversation. I've had worse conversations at these oh, events. Sure. So that was uh, remarkably spirited. That was great. So what have you gleaned from being out on the campaign trail? Well, I will say the Haley campaign was... First of all, it was nice to be in Charleston. I spent too much time in Pennsylvania, so it was really nice to be in lovely South Carolina. The folks there were 
were an interesting sort. I think uh, this is the first time we see somebody come out against Donald Trump in this now election season. I think that was the big question we had. Who are these folks who were Trump supporters and now becoming Haley supporters? Another uh, person came up to me and said, because Trump is a loser, because of the midterms, that was his big thing. There was definitely an energy at this Haley uh, event of people who were excited about something new. It was a little bit more wholesome than a Trump MAGA event. It was small. It was little. I don't think it has much of a, a, a chance, but there's definitely uh, an eagerness there to have more adult conversations. And they were previous Trump supporters. That's what you found yeah. mostly, who I'm, had moved over to Nikki Haley. Most of them were Trump supporters, uh, a little bit upset with Donald Trump. But when you ask them the follow-up questions, too, if, if Haley gets out of the race, are you disgusted with Trump to the point that you wouldn't support him now? Most of them would go back yeah. to to Trump. Interesting. Uh, so, Jessica, I mean, it's hard to know what's happening on the campaign trail. These are early days. But Ron DeSantis is sure getting a lot of attention for somebody who hasn't announced that he's running. That is true. And I, he's doing the Trump playbook. He's making noise. He's being loud, although he actually has held office, which would be different from Trump, had some level of that experience. But yeah, he's being loud. He is being obnoxious. He is saying all the anti-CRT saying the quiet part out loud, a.k.a. the racist part out loud. So, yeah, he's, he's making a splash. We'll see what happens if he actually ends up coming out and trying to run. Here's a, I don't know, is it, is it worth it to show you a poll? Is it, is it interesting right now? <laughs> Said you're the political junkie Listen, here. I think, I think it's a poll of name recognition. Okay, right now. so here it, it is. This is uh, Quinnipiac poll. This is from February 9th through 14th. So Trump, 42%. DeSantis, 36%. Haley, 5%. Pence, 4 Pompeo, 4 I mean... As we know, polling at this point particularly doesn't have a ton of weight, but I think we can glean something from this. My colleague Nate Cohn talked about how DeSantis at this point of the race is not like some other challenger. We should think about him as someone coming in with a kind of top-tier level stardom into a race that translates to money, to name recognition, the ability to wait as the race develops, which is certainly a luxury that DeSantis will have. But what he is trying to do in a subtle contrast way is say that you can get Donald Trump the president without Donald Trump the the personality, without Donald Trump, the ruckus, without Donald Trump, the the mess. And so what he is trying to do is to lean into a kind of governance, subtle strategy where you, if you feel that the country is moving in the wrong direction culturally or in, in, a, in a view of wokeness or the like, oh, you can still really vote for this person. That. Absolutely. But you can do it without uh, uh, having a porn star scandal at the same time. That, that, excellent. Well, you know what? How do you see it? Some people like that. <laughs> um, there is a there's a graveyard somewhere full of Republican primary contestants who were second term governors who had peaked this early in the race. I mean, Jeb Bush is in there. Scott Walker is in there. Um, I don't think anybody wants to be peaking this early. All it does is help you with money. But a hundred million dollars didn't help Jeb Bush get the nomination. You're right. I totally agree with the analysis that he's trying to be uh, Trump, but just a little more buttoned down. What he doesn't have that Trump has is the kind of broad scale charisma. I mean, like him or hate him, Donald Trump can entertain a crowd. I have uh, spent a little bit of time with Ron DeSantis one-on-one. I have studied his career. This is not a personality who can entertain broadly, who has the magnanimity, who really has the, the broadcast charisma that Donald Trump has, and that is a quality you need on the campaign trail. And here's a, here's a picture that might capture that. This was um, President Biden during Hurricane um, Ian in Florida, and he's obviously comforting people. He has his arm around some of the folks there. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sure this is just a moment that we've captured Governor DeSantis, but he seems um, glum. But, but do you know, Governor DeSantis was probably thinking about the infamous Chris Christie image when being nice to a Democratic president ends up ruining your future campaign. He is trying to intentionally keep it so that he doesn't end up having a bad moment there. Maybe, maybe. Or maybe he just doesn't like to, you know, look people in the eye when he's with them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On that note... All right. Uh, is this the most Bernie Sanders thing ever? Bernie Sanders caught in the middle of a TikTok video looking grumpy about it. Our panel's going to give their thoughts on what he was thinking at that exact moment. Well... You never know who's going to accidentally photobomb your TikTok video. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's Senator Bernie Sanders. He's an unlikely star of TikTok, and the video has gone viral. We are back with Jessica Jordan, Ested, and Margaret. Okay, so if we just freeze frame that so obviously he was... Part confused, part annoyed. I mean, that's what I. <laughs> that's kind of baseline. Yes, it is. <laughs> we can say that about a lot of events. Um, but if we just freeze this moment right there, what Jordan is his thought bubble at that exact moment as he's watching the doorman and this TikTok star do a TikTok dance? As somebody who lives in New York, this happens to New Yorkers four times a day. <laughs> so I think he's like again. Uh, <laughs> There are at least three other TikTok videos that people had the decency not to upload because they were like, that's Bernie Sanders. He didn't want to be in this. I won't put it up there. So shame on these folks for getting the clicks. That's hilarious. So he's saying again, Jessica, what do you think he's saying? I want to go positive with this. I think that Bernie Sanders, he was thinking, maybe I'll join the dance. He was looking at it for a second. He realized it's not my time. It's not my time. He's got his own TikTok. This is not a man who doesn't know about technology. I think he wants to get in on the dance. And then he was, you know, he gave the respect and he said, I'm not, it's not for today. I like that. So he was actually assessing right there what the dance moves were. That is what I think, yes. Yeah, I see it. I see it. I said, what do you think he was doing? I think he thought big tech got me again. I think he's thinking <laughs> that, like, you know, he can't get a second apiece without the, without the overlords of <laughs> looking out at them. <laughs> yep, I see that too. That makes sense. Go ahead, Mark. I think he sees the camera, and I think he's the camera's right there, and he's like, "But these people are dancing, and they're in my way." Wait, can I just say one thing? TikTok is evil. We should not be doing a whole TikTok thing we right now. We shouldn't be having fun with TikTok. Federal employees are not even allowed to have TikTok on their phones because it's a Trojan horse for the Chinese government. Okay, fun police. Okay, yeah, I am the fun police here. No, because you know where TikTok is fun? It's fun in China. Because you know what they do? They let their 14-year-olds watch educational material, and then they cut them off after 45 minutes, and then they export the opioid version to us. By the way, that's, like, not my metaphor. That's the metaphor of the Nobel Peace Prize winner from last year, who's a Filipino journalist who writes excessively about this. Her name is Maria Ressa. You can look her up. So TikTok is evil, and and we shouldn't be watching it. And Bernie Sanders shouldn't have been on it, but it wasn't his fault. It was an accident. Okay, way to take the fun out of the meme. Sorry, guys. Uh, Just because we're all being invaded by TikTok and our minds are being controlled by it, which I know you're right. I actually know you're right, Margaret. Thank you. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Thank you for letting the air out of that. I I, um, And Sorry, guys. Now, now you regret. Just, yeah. I love TikTok. Just right yeah, yeah. I just sit. I just sit in my bed and just scroll all the time. I, I, you know, if it's hurting me, it's fine. There's a lot of other things I should get rid of first. Yeah. Good. Don't make that mistake again, you guys. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. All right. 
All right. Meanwhile, will Donald Trump be indicted in the Georgia investigation into his efforts to overturn the election? The foreperson of that special grand jury is speaking out to CNN tonight. Stay with us. The foreperson of the Georgia special grand jury is speaking out to CNN tonight after that high-profile investigation that spanned seven months and 75 witnesses, including some of Donald Trump's closest allies. Here's what she says about possible charges for the former president. I will tell you that it was a process where we heard his name a lot. Uh, We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't, there are no major plot twists waiting for you. Here with me now, we have executive editor for One World, Kierna Mayo, also Mike Broomhead, host of The Mike Broomhead Show at KTAR, Kyvin Schroff, senior advisor for the Institute for Education and former U.S. attorney, Harry Littman. Harry, you're a former prosecutor, uh, is that a problem that she is speaking out and explain a lot? And I'll, I'll play more sound from her and talking a lot about what the process was for the special grand jury. I thought it was supposed to happen in secret. It ain't great. And she it's not as if she's breaking the law, but she could really have the judge come down on her hard. And there, she could raise arguments that uh, that Trump will eventually raise as to tainting the jury pool bad. But the headline here, you know, let's just take a step back. The Fulton County D.A., they clearly recommended the indictment of Donald Trump, not to mention maybe 15 other people. She as much as said it. She said, you know, I, well, I won't tell you, but the initials are Donald Trump. <laughs> when they when they asked, well, he says he was completely exonerated. She literally rolls her eyes and laughs. There are four different ways in which she makes it really beyond any doubt. There's a possibility Willis doesn't take her up on the recommendation, but it's a small one. So. Yes, absolutely right. She's talking out of school. It's not good for the case. But man, we're going to have for the first time in the history of the country, a Fulton County DA is going to indict not just Trump, but almost certainly it seems to me, Mark Meadows, maybe John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani. This is the huge event people have been clamoring for for a year. Okay, so let's listen to a little bit more of what she said right here to show how you're reading these tea leaves that are not subtle. Yeah. (laughs) Is it, would you say, when it comes to, there are, indi- there are indictments recommended, of course. Is it yes. more than 12 people? Is it more than 20 people? I think if you look at the page numbers of the report, there's about six pages in the middle that got cut out. Allow for spacing. It's not a short list. Not a short list. More, I mean, when it comes to 75 witnesses, like, is it, it's not, I assume, of course, it's not 75 people. Would you characterize it as 20-ish people? I can't say I counted. (laughs) Okay. More than a dozen, though, I think I'd heard you say in another interview. I believe so. That's probably a good assumption. Uh, Kaivon, what are you hearing here? Yeah, you know, I think... 
it, I, I relate, first of all, for her wanting to share this with the American people because this process is so confusing and so secretive. And it's not just a year that people have been waiting, really. It's been six plus years, two impeachments, you know, the January 6th committee, countless probes, and nobody really has seen any accountability here. So there's all this process with no results. And I think sort of the backsliding of American democracy will not stop until we do see that accountability. So I certainly hope that um, Harry's right here. <laughs> Mike, you have your finger on the pulse of Trump <laughs> supporters and Republican voters. You talked to them on your call in show. What do you think here? I think part of this, what, what this does sometimes is it makes him a sympathetic character in a lot of ways. When you talk about the laundry list of accusations over the years, people in that camp believe that this has been a witch hunt and this is one more level of them. They are not going to stop until they get something. Now, whether that's true or not, I'm just giving you what the information is and what the people inside that camp are doing. It makes him a sympathetic figure that this is a witch hunt. They're not going to stop until they get something on him. And I imagine that's what Trump is going to say, too, eventually. Karen, how do you see it? Uh, Trump has also been accused, allegedly, of rape. So when I think about Donald Trump and indictments, I think about someone who has gotten away with a lot. It really doesn't matter what people's feelings are, really, on the right. It just can't matter. At some point, something's got to stick. Better now than any time, you know, here we are. One of the interesting things about that, Kierna, is that uh, we don't know if he's gotten away with a lot. We know he hasn't been adjudicated yeah, so he exactly. doesn't. It's not it's, even that he he doesn't doesn't even, It's not even that he goes through the court case and then isn't convicted. It's that somehow that I mean, other than impeachments, which as you know the Senate didn't convict. Yes. Other than that, there is not a level of adjudication, and so that Whatsoever. I think for people who are critics of Donald Trump or just even law-abiding people who yeah. want there to be a process, every day they're Americans. the ones who have been waiting a long yes. time. Yeah, but at the same time, when he's gone through the process, in some cases, there hasn't ended up in a conviction. So the, in other cases, people say, unless you're convicted of a crime, then you've not been convicted. That's so true. we can't. So that is the issue here is we all want the truth. I will tell you, if somebody breaks the law, mm-hmm. I don't care who you are, you should pay a penalty for it. And I think it does a disservice to the justice system. But time after time, there have been accusations against the president, but there hasn't been convictions. Or I should say the former president. There should there hasn't been convictions. And that for me, I think when I look at the supporters of Donald Trump. That's what they keep pointing to. You keep accusing, but nothing ever sticks. Harry, what's going to happen now? I mean, she's speaking. You said that she could be in deep water with the judge, meaning what? What could McBurney will say he told them, look, uh, you shouldn't really be saying anything that's not published. And she's being very cutesy and saying all kinds of things. She's giving the basic numbers. She's coming close to giving the names, etc. Now, It's not against the law. He won't throw her in jail, but he could really hammer her and say you're violating the court's um, orders. Again, though, that's the most. I do think that she's there's obviously some frustration on the part of that special grand jury, though she said they weren't talking with one another, at least on the part of that four person. She not only gave all these hints, she also said, I want something to happen. Finally, they're frustrated, I think that Willis is still taking a fair bit of time after calling it imminent, and maybe she's trying to put pressure on her. It is not good what she's doing, it's, and in fact, she, you know, it, it, is, it could harm the case. Still, the headline, the mind-blowing headline, and as to your point, facts and law. Just give me 11,780 votes. This is the first time he'll actually be indicted and subject to proof that is, if it go, I should actually say, he'll, the indictment will come here first. I'm not sure the trial will come here first. We can talk more about that. But, you know, 
she's got very good facts on her side, starting with the Raffensperger call that Emily Kors said they spent a lot of time on. Kyvon, I'm reminded of how many people I have interviewed on a set just like this over the past, fill in the blank, six years, um, who have said something is imminently going to happen from the Mueller, uh, you know, investigation through the hush money payments. Michael Cohen is often on here and says that things are immediately going to happen. And it never has. But Harry, I mean, Harry's so confident. I've, I've not been one of them. <laughs> no, you haven't. Yeah. But I mean, but you you sound as confident as people have in the past predicting things like this. 100%. Look, they def, it's definitely, I'm 100% confident in the special grand jury report. Why would Willis not up, uphold that recommendation when everyone will be there? There's a chance, but it, that strikes me as a 95% shot. So that's my confidence. We're really close to actual grand jury speaking. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. I mean, I hope you're right. But I do think, again, like everyone always is waiting for this big shoe to drop. And I think, you know, it's 2023. The justice system needs to sort of adjust and adapt and learn how to communicate with the American public in a way where it's not all or nothing and they are understanding sort of why can't certain information be shared or why would it be inappropriate sort of as we're criticizing, you know, the four women there. Um, so I do think, you know, there needs to be a major update to the DOJ and how they're doing a lot of this. Trina, what happens, you know, Donald Trump is running for president again. What happens if this indictment is soon, you know, imminent or is happening? What does happen? You know, we, we, look, well, first of all, the, half of us, let's just say half of us, believe that he is a criminal, right? So we have a criminal running for office. If you're one out of two Americans, you don't believe anything that the man has claimed to be truth. And unfortunately, we're looking at a situation where we might have a convicted criminal running for office. Ask the right. Yes, and to your point, Mike, that might, I mean, the people that you talk to, that wouldn't be a deterrent. No, again, the people I talk to, it wouldn't be a deterrent. And and to your point, a few moments ago, you said it's not about feelings. There's a lot of people in this country that believe that because of the Hunter Biden thing, that Joe Biden's a criminal. That doesn't make it true. That doesn't make it convictable. And it doesn't mean that he shouldn't be the president of the United States. I want, again, from my point of view as a Republican, I want the truth. If the the former president committed a crime, he should be punished for that crime. But I want evidence. I want to see it with the grand jury. It's it's isn't it solely in the grand jury that it's the prosecution that's giving evidence sure. and there but is no defense. The, you have I, heard I'm not the arguing law. that. Right. I mean, I mean but that, I want to see that part of it. If it yeah. goes to trial, I want to see both sides. The American people deserve to see that. And then let's come to a conclusion as people, not Republicans and Democrats, but as citizens of this country. And so, Harry, the special grand jury, we have these clues from the four one. So. That now what? A different grand jury needs to be convened now? Right. By Georgia law, their only role, they, she needed her them for some reasons, but they cannot vote out an indictment. So now there must be a regular grand jury. There's good reason to think that grand jury won't meet until next month. But she can very quickly, in fact, through what hearsay, as the lawyers would say, bring an agent and summarize the report, give it to them and ask the new grand jury for an, an indictment. And that's the way it would work. Okay, and then and let's let's just go down this road. Then there's an indictment, and then how long does what is the next step, and how long does that take? Yeah, it's a great question. First, by the way, you know every week brings a mind-bending, unprecedented scenario with Donald Trump. This one, it's it's especially funky. I think would be the legal term because you have a local DA indicting a former president. Does that mean that after Biden's done, somebody from Oklahoma can do the same? There are a lot of embedded issues here. 
even without them, he could go for a year uh, before you really swear in a jury with them. Who knows? And it might go to federal court. It is really a complicated sort of law school hypothetical. The bottom line, though, is there's no constitutional reason why the president can't run with an ankle bracelet and from jail. It's just crazy. But if the 32 percent stay with him, et cetera, and he becomes the nominee and he's a convicted criminal, that's what the framers had in mind. But don't you think that, but don't, (laughs) what the Republicans are talking about running with the candidates now with Nikki Haley in, the possibility of Ron DeSantis, the Republicans aren't stupid. And if the president is up Hmm. against those kind of headwinds, well, they're they're not stupid. The Republicans are not stupid. And if if they're up against those headwinds and they they are supporters of Donald Trump, if they see this now, if he's convicted or it looks like he's going to be convicted. I mean, it won't be, we won't have time. What you're saying is there certainly won't be time for a conviction. You're saying the process will be underway. Sure. And and, right in the middle of things. Sure. You're totally right. I think that might be one reason DeSantis is is waiting. And I think you'll see people look, at least they want to look for an alternative. Even if they're diehard supporters, you're not going to stick with a horse that can't win. But how many times has that been said? You know, yes, in this case, we're talking about a criminal conviction. But again and again, it's been said, you know, Republicans are going to stick with Trump if he does this, if this happens, if that happens. You know, and I hate to, you know, disparage, but, you know. Maybe they should all take the competency test. I yeah. mean, I'm curious. But take a, but take a look at the numbers. <laughs> look at how the numbers are going now where you're seeing a huge amount of support in the Republican Party for Ron DeSantis. Now, I'm not pre- predicting he's going to win anything. Nikki Haley's confident enough to jump in the race. They mm-hmm. aren't doing that if they don't smell blood in the water, so to speak, that they think that they have a chance of winning against Donald Trump. That's a good point. Uh, Thank you all very much. Great perspectives. Now this. Vanderbilt University reaching out to students after the deadly mass shooting last week in Michigan. And they're talking about caring for one another and promoting inclusivity. But there's something about their statement that is not sitting well with some students. We'll tell you what next. After the mass shooting last week at Michigan State University, Vanderbilt University sent a note to try to soothe its students. And that note read in part, quote, in the wake of the Michigan shootings, let us come together as a community to reaffirm our commitment to caring for one another and promoting a culture of inclusivity on our campus. By doing so, we can honor the victims of this tragedy and work towards a safer, more compassionate future for all. We're back with Jenna Mayo, Mike Broomhead, Kai Von Schroff and Harry Littman. So, uh, Kirna, do you see anything strange about that? I mean, just just uh, at first blush, would you notice that there was anything strange about that message? Yes, but I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm a wordsmith. It's, just, it's generic. There's no nuance. There's no tone. A tragedy has happened. I want the human touch right off the top. So you, would, all, you would sense that there was something kind of robotic Absolutely. about that? Absolutely. Okay, because I don't, I wouldn't. To me, I completely it, sensed you it. You did? You sensed mm-hmm. that there was something wrong. Mike, did you sense there was anything no, wrong there? No, I didn't. I'm with you. I didn't sense it. But knowing what happened, it's outrageous. But um, to your point, it would take an expert like you in order to be able to, but I to didn't see it. it. No, yeah. I didn't see it either. Um, Kaivon, it turns out that ChatGPT, they had, they farmed this out. The administration at Vanderbilt 
farmed this Terrible. out to ChatGPT to send to students. You know, I think it's so offensive and incredibly ironic. I mean, you're talking about building culture and community and respect and, you know, emotion, and you're using a robot to do it because you don't want to take the five minutes to write a sincere message to students. I mean, I think it's ridiculous. And by the way, it, it may sound generic. I think, you know, at this point, we have a gun violence epidemic in the country, so it probably would sound generic even if a human wrote it. But, you know, they probably have many of those letters that they've sent. So if they wanted to, you know, save the time, they certainly could have updated one of those. So I find it, you know, an absolutely ludicrous choice. I'm just not even sure of the motivation. Were they, Harry, were they, you know, was it a time thing, which is hard to believe because it was only something like four paragraphs, (laughs) or was it, we have to get this right? You know, we have to get this right. Language is so dicey right now. Well, let's get the help of ChatGPT. It's hard to know. Uh, my sense is they just wanted, they were curious about ChatGPT. I actually feel the same about this as I do about the last story in the sense, this is atrocious judgment. They really misbehaved, but ChatGPT, yeah. this is some scary stuff. You, you saw another story there where like, you know, the ChatGPT is suddenly assert, going weird on them and asserting <laughs> they yes. love them or, oh, they, yes. or I want to be, take, I want to be competitive. ChatGPT developed a... Uh, crazy crush and on you, the journalist. That's right. And, and if you can, you all you have to do is program that. I mean, they, there's a genuine question among serious uh, AI yeah. scholars. Can can they be programmed? Like, you know, can Hal in 2001 be a real scenario where they're looking to take over? The answer is not clearly no, I think, from people I respect. Okay, hold on. That was the Bing search engine that w- yeah. went, um, that turned into a love-crazed <laughs> lunatic. Right. That was Bing search, and we talked yeah. to the journalists at the, at yeah. the New York Times. But yeah. here is what yeah. the students, once this came to light yeah. and they figured out it was chat GPT, you can imagine that the students at Vanderbilt felt confused. And so here's what one student said. I had friends on the Michigan State University campus in Berkey Hall that night of the shooting. No one expects an institution to comfort you after a tragedy, but you do expect them not to make it worse in a scramble to score PR points. Yeah, I think you actually do expect a university to comfort you after a tragedy. One, you give them a lot of money to take very good care of you. And two, we live in a crazy world. People have got to be nuanced and sensitive when things like this happen. The one interesting thing to me, though, about what's happening with AI is the predictable loss of white-collar jobs, which is actually very level-setting. Because usually when we think about innovation, we throw away working-class jobs as though those people don't matter, as though those jobs don't, those lives don't matter. And in this case, I think there's going to be a very different conversation when people like all of us have our actual jobs threatened by Like, we don't AI. need PR people anymore if they're going to just oh, cl- spit out these kinds I mean, of letters it, and they don't need a PR person, then exactly. chat, uh, GPT is coming for your job. Yeah, but the university should be ashamed. But there are so many things in life that have to be genuine. If you're going to give, if you're the best man or the maid or matron of honor at a wedding and you're giving the speech, if you, I've had to do a eulogy for a brother. And when you do something like that, the, the best thing you can do is have it be genuine. When you're doing something like this with a tragedy like this, to have it not be from the heart and be robotic is a slap in the face. And I think it says a lot of what the challenges are for ChatGPT and what they're facing in what the real world is in, in emotion. And can they convey that? Yeah, but I'm with Harry. I just don't know that we would know this if they hadn't. I, I wouldn't have known. Although they put that little thing on the did. bottom. So, so they, they, yeah. they just, they, I don't know if it was accidental that they put the thing on the bottom <laughs> that said by chat GPT <laughs> yeah. or if they wanted the students to see that it was. Um, but if not, we wouldn't know that it was generating this. So he, this is from the dean. I just want to get the dean's statement yeah. in to try to explain this. 
The dean at uh, Vanderbilt says the development and distribution of the initial email did not follow Peabody's normal processes. That's the school that where this happened, providing for multiple layers of review before being sent. The university's administrators, including myself, were unaware of the email before it was sent out. My office will conduct a complete review of the sequence of events that led to sending out this original email. So that's the dean of Vanderbilt's Peabody College. Did he have chat GPT right there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fair question. Um, well, I think, you know, it's a story about ChatGPT. It's also a story about higher education in America and really this perception, which is often true, that it really is about the bottom line and less and less about students and less and less about the education. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really a sad moment, I think, um, that really reflects a, a bigger picture. But isn't it bad PR? I mean, if you, we talked about PR people. Yeah. I have great PR people that work with me. And that's their job is to make sure. <laughs> well, no, I do. I do. I know I do. That's what I'm saying. We know that they they vet things like that. Yeah. They make sure that doesn't go out. The fact that that wasn't reviewed is, is just amazing to me at Vanderbilt University. You're right. Condolence letters need to be written by humans. Yeah. Correct. It, it can never change. I mean, but, you know, uh, here again, a year from now, this may not be a story. We may, this may become commonplace and heaven forbid for all of us. Thank you guys very much. Okay, everyone, stay with me. Just ahead, the Supreme Court is hearing cases that may tell us a lot about how to control social media and how it's affecting our society. Harry's going to put it in layman's terms for us because it can get complicated and he's going to explain it. All right, the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments today in the first of two cases that could reshape how social media platforms handle free speech. The cases involve Google and Twitter. These are big questions that the court is tackling about which laws should regulate social media. We're back with Kieran Mayo, Mike Broomhead, Kai Von Schroth, and Harry Littman. Harry, tell us how these cases in front of the Supreme Court will change our lives. How they could. So you ever do a Google search and it comes back and it's like your first great teacher and your favorite food. And how the hell did they know that? They know that because they use algorithms. They know what you've done before and they send it your way. They they would say they're just trying to help you out sort of curating. That's independent input from Google. And what the law says is if you're just publishing something that a third party has said, you just put it up there, you don't have any liability. Here, Google did this and certain people from ISIS got the join ISIS, please. They did. They killed the family member of someone and those people are suing. But what they're basically saying is the law that says You've got a clean pass as long as you're just channeling what someone else said shouldn't apply where they're contributing their own uh, stuff to the to the bring their own stuff to the party. And so sorry. So more accountability. That sounds good. Right. More accountability for these platforms. Well, the uh, the nine people on the court, as Justice Kagan says, we don't we're not internet experts. And the real worry is if you put that in. There, it could be Katie bar the door on all kinds of lawsuits. They might not, and and they uh, posed that question to the U.S. government, and, they, and basically said it's true, but they most of them wouldn't succeed. But the court is obviously concerned with a field day for lawsuits, and I th- I've talked to people who were in the courtroom. They actually think Google is probably going to win this one. But the main thing that that the court was thinking is this should be Congress's problem. We just we're, we don't know, and they've got to fix this. Please don't bring this to us. And I think we're going to have another case tomorrow. It's slightly different. But that, the final opinion, I think will reflect that kind of 
Congress, this is your job. Yeah, I think right to that point of consider the nine people deciding this. They're not digital natives. Um, actually, the nonprofit I'm involved with, the Institute for Education, we did an event where we were curious. We had uh, Megan Smith, the former CTO, and Justice Breyer, and talked about, you know, how do the justices stay up to date with innovation and technology? And they really do draw from so many sources. But I think still, when you're not online every day, you're not on Twitter, you're not understanding sort of the vitriol that can come at you, um, it is really different. And, you know, it's funny here because I think there's a lot of support on both sides uh, for, you know, diminishing this Section 230 um, for really polar opposite reasons, which is that Democrats want to hold social media companies accountable for failing to moderate hate and, um, you know, disinformation. And Republicans want to punish them for moderating that stuff. So they come up with the same answer to very different, you know, sort of agenda items. So it's interesting to watch. So you just mentioned Section 230. Here's what it is. A legal shield that protects platforms from legal liability from content provided by third parties. Platforms have immunity for moderating content as they see fit. Karen, we've all seen the downside of this. I mean, the algorithms feed you often pernicious, dangerous stuff. I mean, I think yes. of teenage girls, you know, teenage girls who are fed um, anorexia content and it makes them sicker. It, it's a very complex subject. But really, there's a problem when the internet in and of itself causes harm. First of all, this is only happening. This has only come to fore because somebody's child was killed. You send your child to Paris on vacation, you think your child's coming home. You don't think your child is going to be a victim of ISIS because someone's been radicalized by the internet. I think we just have to be real about the impact overall that the internet has. And it's just, we've gone way too long allowing these major companies to have a pass and not claim that they are publishers. They are publishers. You're held to a standard. The New York Times held to a standard. Every other publisher is held to particular standards except the internet. There's got to be some give there. My only concern is who defines hate and what's what's going to happen, you know, for your business and what you do if there's another group of people that get to define hate? Is this now going to be a challenge to what our First Amendment rights are? And you're obviously better at speaking this than I am. But, you know, a lot of people I have a lot of hate come my way on social media because of what I do. But at the same time, I have a right to speak and no one's ever challenged my right to speak. My concern would be that it would get to that point, that somebody would say that what I'm saying is hateful and dangerous and I would be shut down. And I think that is a huge concern maybe down the road. Yeah, I, I'm not saying it's not complicated. I'm just saying that, I mean, I hope that Congress can tackle this. Um, Harry, let's talk about yeah. the other case. Yeah. So as I understand it, uh, the Supreme Court this week will be hearing another issue. This one revolves around the mother of a 10-year-old who died after seeing and then I guess doing the blackout challenge on TikTok. She tried it on herself. And here the, the, mother's, uh, the mother of this girl um, who, again, was 10 years old, was on um, CBS this morning. So let's listen to this. They are actually feeding into our children. They are sending on videos that they never even searched before. She was the life of my life. She was smart. She was loving. She was caring. She was a shining star. She was my butterfly. She was everything any mother can ask for. It's awful, and there are obviously real-life consequences to all of these things. 
These are super tragic stories. This one went the other way, and so it might give the court some options for a sort of middle ground. But basically, Google wants to say we're a huge newsstand. And they want to say, you're not a news, because you're choosing to make this magazine about blackout or ISIS and put it in front. And when you do that, you've lost the sort of neutrality that's the assumption behind 230. Tricky, tricky, tricky issue. They they say we're newsstand. Others say you're a publisher. Get real. So. But what about when Mike says that, you know, will it curtail free speech? I mean, it has the the possibility of curtailing free speech. Yeah. Now, of course, Congress, what, you know, Congress just said, you're okay if you're just channeling. And that's not a free speech issue. But if you get to this point where people are getting sued, I mean, that's what New York Times versus Sullivan's about. If you do things that, that are for free speech reasons and... People are, can sue you. Yeah, that's a problem. And, and the, the justices were wrangling with that. The lawyer for Google was saying this, and the justices came back. I don't know if I have to buy your whole parade of horribles to go the other way, but they're, to your point, they're just really struggling. They're not, they're human, they're, and they're old. By and large, they're not, you know, I, I don't, I know this, my kids do go circles around me and could get that very thing. That's who they, you know, that's what they're dealing with. Yeah, to your point, they're not digital natives. Yeah. Well, and I think people keep pointing out, you know, the court is worried about this, like, sort of floodgates of litigation opening up. And that is one consideration, but it certainly shouldn't be, I think, the main consideration on this. And another point, people keep saying, you know, Section 230, the Internet couldn't have gotten off the ground without it. But I think it's very fair to say, you know, the Internet is doing okay. <laughs> you know, like, so I don't think that those examples are necessarily good justification. So I'm very curious to see what the outcome will be. Tune into the argument tomorrow. We can all listen to it. It's pretty interesting. Uh, that's what you're here for, Harry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> or just invite a nerd over. That's fine. That's so. exactly <laughs> what we're doing. Harry. <laughs> just Thank you all. Stick with us, everyone. Uh, who wouldn't like to work a four-day work week? We're going to tell you who's doing it and what the data shows on how it's working. Okay, everybody, imagine working a four-day week but still getting 100% of your pay. It's not a dream. It's happening. So how is it going? We're back with our panel. Okay, here's what they did to figure out if this would work, guys. This was a pilot program in the U.K., and they basically uh, did it at 61 companies. There were almost 3,000 workers who took part. It was a six-month trial. As I said, got 100% of their pay for 80% of the time, okay? And... It went really well. They all really liked it. And in terms of productivity, they said that they got 100% of the output. Basically, here's how they rated it. They said uh, 92% of the organizations will continue, want to continue doing this four-day work week, and everybody agrees. The overall experience out of a 10 was an 8.3. The business performance and productivity, a 7.5 on a scale of 10. Revenue went up, they claim, 35% at these 61 companies. The number of staff leaving during that time went down 57% compared to similar periods from previous years. Why aren't we all doing this? I mean, do we need any more evidence? I said you had me at four days. Like, this would close the segment over. Yeah, you didn't need (laughs) to hear all this data. Not at all. Right. But it is curious that productivity was down and revenue was up. Well, wait, productivity... No, business performance and productivity is at 7.5. Like, that's how they rate themselves. So productivity, I think they would say, is... Wait, did I say Okay, I thought you said it was down. No, the number of staff leaving went down. Okay. And productivity, I think they would say it went up. Mm-hmm. And 
happiness went up. By the way, we'll get to that. Here's the most interesting finding of the study. The men there wound up spending much more time in child care, in their own child care. Not household work, but the men in the study did... did More time did, with their families, their kids. With their kids. I mean, did the, the, you know, the, the real thing. That, that was a really remarkable thing. So, you know, that whole social good, right? That's an important thing. It, it, it is. is right? Mothers, in particular, have always right. needed that extra day. Right. Like, there's a lot we're juggling yes. in addition to the job. The job always gets done. Right. So whether it, and what we were saying at break was that for most of us, eight hour days are really 10 hour days anyway. So you're putting in the time. The work is going to happen. But this opportunity to wash your clothes on a Friday afternoon. Anything. Hello. Anything. Go to the grocery yes. store. It's also yes. delicious. Yes. I, mean, yes. I mean, it sounds yeah. fantastic. Here's what, according to the employees, what their feelings are now. 90% of them want to continue. 73% felt greater satisfaction in their lives. 71% had reduction in the levels of burnout. 62% easier work-life balance, of course. 55% an increase in their ability at work. 54% a reduction in negative emotions. 46% a reduction in fatigue. 43% improvement in mental health. 40% reduction in sleep difficulties, less stress. Isn't, I mean, that alone, we're, we're in this like mental health crisis and we're all wondering, what are we supposed to do about it, Mike? And then it turns out a four-day work week might yeah. help solve some of this. We did this. I was in construction for years and had my own electrical contracting company. We would do this on job sites for efficiency because you have 20 guys on a job. Everybody gets there in the morning. There's a rollout time. At the end of the day, there's a roll-up time. And you eliminate one of those days. It was for efficiency. We didn't realize that all of those things were going to happen. Mm-hmm. They really liked it. They wanted Friday off until Monday morning, and then they wished they had Monday <laughs> off. But the idea of having a three-day work week or a three-day weekend motivates people to get the job done in the four days. They want you to keep doing it. And you're right. All of that happened as a byproduct of what we thought it was going to be. Come on. Why aren't we doing this everywhere? First of all, love a pilot program. An old professor of mine, Cornell West, really would drive home the point that, you know, America should be doing these experiments with policy. And it's, you know, it's that's our bread and butter. And I'd love to see more of it. I do think it's worth pointing out, you know, when we talk about a four-day work week, for who? Because we saw with the pandemic, of course, you know, a certain sector of the labor market did have like all the flexibility of remote work and not commuting and more time at home with kids. But of course, our nurses, our frontline workers were working harder than ever. So, you know, how do we deliver sort of the future of work to everybody um, in a way that's sustainable instead of really further segment the workforce where you have all these people that do get to have all this quality time and really enjoy their work environment and, you know, everyone else gets left behind. So I think that should be part of the conversation. Well, we need more nurses and teachers. I mean, we just do. We right. need more in order to have a four-day work Absolutely. Week. And just in life, we need more. Um, all right. Well, I feel like we've decided... That this we've is the right decided. answer. And AI will take care of the rest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're off on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I won't be seeing you guys tomorrow. No, just kidding. Um, we'll see how that works. Thank you guys very much. Now to this. If you fly with your kids, you're going to want to hear about this. United Airlines making a big change to its family seating policy. I don't really understand why they ever had this policy, but we're going to talk about how it's changing now for your next travel. Pipe down, everyone. Uh, Good news for parents. Flying together as a family is about to get easier and possibly cheaper. United Airlines will now let families with children under 12 book seats together free of charge. How about that? 
The policy comes with basic economy tickets, but not with economy plus or first class. It should go into effect in the next few weeks. Back with me, we have Kirna, Mike, Kaivon, and Harry. Guys, I'm very bummed because I used to like a random stranger having to take care of my kids in a different row. I mean, how is this not a policy? How were you supposed to be separated from your children in a different row, Mike? Yeah, I don't even understand. And who's the person who says, no, no, no I'm yeah. gonna, I want to stay with your kids. I you don't can get go. it. Exactly right. Like, I'm happy yeah. for the families yeah. and I'm happy for everyone else on the plane. <laughs> I love kids, but not yeah. on a plane. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> trying to seats with you because I want to babysit your you're, child. You're three kids while, I, while you're up at the front of the plane. I don't understand how this ever wasn't a policy. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it interesting now that this has become a benefit? Yes. But here's the thing. Along I, with I the believe peanuts. this origin is the State of the Union. I think mm. there's some staffer who, whoever thought of the resort fee, they were sitting around him, and whoever thought of this is like now, you know, been elevated three times. Like, what a great idea. Okay, here's that and This moment. was State of the yes, Union. This and he's made it changed, into State of the he Union. Here she's changed here, the world. Here is this moment yeah. of import. Here you go. We're making airlines show you the full ticket price up front. Refund your money if your flight is canceled or delayed. We'll prohibit airlines from charging $50 round trip for family just to be able to sit together. Baggage fees are bad enough. Airlines can't treat your child like a piece of baggage. He was passionate. And, really? And then there's Ukraine, but, you know, yeah. this is... <laughs> well, in fairness, you know, they want to blame Pete Buttigieg for every traffic jam in the country, but he has been pushing this policy since July. So credit where it's due. Is that right? So, yes. so but, but taking away all these hidden airline fees. Well, the family policy. The family policy. Yeah. I don't, I, I am astonished that, I mean, I guess we just, I guess I've just been coughing up the extra $50 and not knowing because my kids are always with me. Yeah, I think we all <laughs> that assume that that's what it was. But this is also an interesting pivot considering engines are falling out of planes while they're in the air. Like there's there's a, another thing to talk about. Well, the family's well, yeah. You want to be together, right? right. It's, it's like like no, getting all the way together. No, I agree. I'm yeah. much more concerned about the near misses. Yeah, it seemed right. to be happening yeah. at various airports. I'd like them to get that. Whatever the system is that needs upgrading, needs I'd upgrade. like them to focus on that for sure. Yeah. Even more important than this. But I just. I'm happy that families yeah. can now sit together without a hidden $50. And how quickly the other airlines are going to have to follow. Totally. Yeah. You know, there, there's no way that they're going to be able to sustain this after this has happened. Right. Bring back yeah. state. Where's Pan Am when you need them? Like, you got to <laughs> bring it all back. No, we don't want to put Pan Am. Yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, yeah but forget it about it. It needs to be a dress code. We'll all get dressed. We'll play like it's Oh, see, now I swear we can't, you can't have that. <laughs> yeah. I'm in pajamas on an airplane. Are you really? Oh, no, not like pajamas, a three-year-old. But, yeah. Like you show sweatpants, up at like a three-year-old. Sweatpants, you know, shoes you don't have to tie. I'm as lazy as I can be on a plane. Now, do you just take them off? Just don't take them off. No, never, ever. No, no, no. Never, ever, ever. But when you had a clear security, I don't have to tie my shoes when it's over. There you Smart. go. Plane strains and automobiles. No one's ever said that candy, to me. Right? No. Smart. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that was great. But but back to Kieran's point, uh, something is going, I don't want to say something's going wrong with airlines. There have been concerning things with airlines that I would like them to focus on now. Now that we've gotten this taken care of. This, yeah, this big action item. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I would like them to stop the near misses and planes uh, accidentally landing on top of one another. Yeah, things and, like that. Right. And the extra fees they charge you for the excitement. No, they don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you fly constantly. Right, exactly. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? I really hate flying, but, uh, but uh, flying with kids is a special kind mm-hmm. of torture for everyone else. So I, the, the, thing, the reason this surprised me was like, 
who doesn't let your kids sit with you? They, you know, they, they want to they let your kids sit with you. So Yeah, it's overdue. Yeah. Flyer? Yes, and actually my family just flew to India this weekend, and I have to tell you, I am not envious of their travel journey. It ended up being like 17 hours, multiple planes, yeah, like... Yeah. Just sounds like a disaster to be traveling right now. Got to tell you. Have you done that flight? <laughs> I um, not as bad as that. No, usually direct is <laughs> yeah, the way to go to India. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that does sound awful. <laughs> um, all right, you guys. Thank you very much. Really fun to have all of you here tonight. Really appreciate Thanks, all Sarah. the different perspectives. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to see you. I will be back tomorrow because I am working a five day <laughs> five day week at the moment, and our coverage continues now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.